everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Unjustly. I am Stephanie. Yes, you are. I am. That wasn't a question. <laughs> I'm Stephanie and this is my co-host Sandy. Hi. So the podcast is out. It officially. is. And we're a few episodes in. We're a few episodes in. We recorded a few before obviously they were ever published. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, guess, yeah we record term. ahead of time and then release afterwards to give us some time to edit and research and research and yeah. be professional for you all. But anyways, you know, we I think we just both wanted to say thank you to everyone because we weren't sure what to expect from any of this. This really just did start off as a, hey, like, do you want to do this podcast? And <laughs> I was just kind of like, yeah, sure. Thinking like, we're never going to make a podcast. And here we are oh, making girl. a podcast. I'm a doer. I'm going to get things done. I know. And, I, and- I forced this to happen. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So you know, a lot of time did pass before we actually yes. got here because a lot of things happened. I got married, Sandy got pregnant, then coronavirus happened. Mm-hmm. But ironically enough, I think it was coronavirus that forced Sandy to, or not forced, but like pushed you to be like, oh yeah, we're going to do this now because I literally have nothing else going on. I was on. stuck at home. Well, for me, it was like, no, this is the worst time because <laughs> everyone has time now. And so everyone is going to be able to listen. But we <laughs> and so you know that's just how things happen but your anxiety was through the my roof anxiety this whole was time. crazy um i'm kind of feeling anxious again now <laughs> but you know we wanted to say thank you because there was a lot of people that we knew were going to be supportive mm-hmm. and then there was a lot of people that we didn't know were going to be supportive and we were who reached out surprised. to us yeah who reached out to us and who were, you know, probably hadn't even heard of the episodes yet, but were just very excited and happy for us. So to everyone who has been listening that we know, thank you. Thank um, you. To everyone who we don't know but has listened, thank you guys so much. Um, actually, one of the people who I don't even know if she's actually listened to any of the episodes, but I posted about it. Um, I posted about the podcast in one of the my favorite murder groups that I'm in Mm -hmm. just to like let people know, Hey, like, you know, my college roommate and I started a podcast. Like if anybody wants to listen, this is the information. And so a lot of people were really nice. They, you know, liked it were encouraging. Um, but one girl actually gave us a recommendation. And since I'm the one that's on the Facebook page (laughs) and Sandy hasn't really been on it because there's not a whole lot going on there, but Please like it and follow it. <laughs> yeah, we have the Facebook up now, so unjustly like <laughs> podcast page. But anyways, the the girl gave me um, a suggestion for a story, and I had already thought of a different story that I wanted to cover. Mm-hmm. And um, when I looked hers up, I just became really fascinated by it because it's a wrongful conviction, but it's a wrongful conviction based on eyewitness testimony that was mistaken, and so. Oof. It goes into the psychology and how someone can be so sure that this person is their rapist in this case Mm -hmm. and then have it turn out not to be the person. And so that to me, just being a kind of person who loves to learn about the psychology of things was really interesting. I'm excited already. So today I'm doing the story of um, Ronald Cotton is his name and um, it was a wrongful conviction for... A rape. Okay. Of Jennifer Thompson Canino. 
I got my information for this story from Picky Cotton, our memoir of injustice and redemption by Jennifer Thompson Canino and Ronald Cotton. And yes, that is who the actual story is about. They ended up writing a book together about their experiences as they went through the process. So it was really interesting to see both of their sides, essentially, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you're getting her side, which is terrifying. And mm-hmm. she does a really good job detailing how she felt, how scary it was, and then the aftermath to how people treated her. And then he does a really good job of explaining and just walking you through what was going through his mind, what it was like in prison, wow. you know, what it was like after. So that so was you really... get the comparison of two different viewpoints. Yeah, all in the one book. So that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I also found a YouTube by Duke University School of Law called Picking Cotton and the Perils of Eyewitness Identification that also had Jennifer and Ronald on as guest speakers. So they talk about how how someone could misidentify um, their assailant. And I love then, that they're doing this together. Oh, I know. You should look up YouTube videos of both of them. Mm-hmm. They're like the sweetest people. Um, he is like a saint. Um, he held no hate, no anger. He understood her Mm -hmm. and did a really good job of helping her deal with the immense guilt that she felt for having been responsible for putting him behind bars. Um, There's also a frontline show that they did together um, that's on pbs.org. And then there was a website called nolo.com, which is basically like an encyclopedia for a psychological like terms and issues Ooh, okay. so I was able to look a little bit of about misidentification um and the psychology behind that on that website and so Jennifer Thompson was the perfect student she was a perfect daughter um the perfect homecoming queen and when her perfect world was ripped apart the petite blonde with the dark expressive eyes became something she could never imagine she became the perfect witness police had never seen a victim so composed so determined so sure And when the worst happened, she fought back, she memorized her assailant's face, and her powerful testimony sent a man to prison for 11 years. Unfortunately, it was the wrong man. Oh, no. Yeah. So this is a story. Um, I'm going to talk in detail about her, like, what happened. Her assault. Her assault. Mm -hmm. um, Because it's her story that puts him behind bars. So I think it's really important for you guys to know... um, kind of all of the details and everything that she was paying attention to as it was happening Mm -hmm. because it's what she remembers after all of this that she gives to the police and so everything. So I think it's important. In July 1984, an assailant broke into Jennifer Thompson Canino's apartment, smashed her porch light, severed her phone wires, and sexually assaulted her. They searched through her belongings, took money, and they took other items. At around 3 a.m., something woke her up. She heard feet shuffling, but in her sleepy state, she couldn't see anything unusual, and all she could hear was a rattling of her AC unit, so she fell back to sleep until she felt something graze her arm. Everything was silent, but when she opened her eyes, she struggled to focus them in the darkness. She then started to make out a shape. It was a man who was on her bed, crouching by her side. The man was suddenly on top of her. His gloved hand covered her mouth and told her to shut up or I'll cut you. She told him he could take whatever he wanted and promised not to call police, but that wasn't what he was there for. She had nothing to use as a weapon, but she knew that even if she did, she wouldn't win a physical struggle. 
He told her he wasn't there for money as he pulled down her underwear, and she knew that she was going to be raped and very likely could be killed. This all sounds terrifying. It's terrifying. The Mm -hmm. way she's, I mean, there's a lot more detail in the book, but obviously for storytelling purposes, there's a lot that had to be left out. But she does an incredible, incredible job. I really do think if this hasn't been made into a movie, that it would make a great psychological thriller. Mm. But this was actually real life. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just entertainment purposes, but I think it would be a really good movie. Um, It seemed vital that her mind was clear because she knew she needed to figure out what to do next. She knew she had to stay present if there was any chance of her staying alive. She could smell the scent of cigarette smoke as he told her he knew she wore glasses and therefore could not see him, but he was wrong. The glasses were for distance and she could see him just fine. She says, in blinks, I willed myself to know the details. I studied his face for features to identify. The hairline, his awful mouth, did he have scars, tattoos? He had close cropped hair, although I didn't want to look at him, I had to. I tried to look at his eyes. They were distinctly almond-shaped and set deep into his face. I searched for something human to connect to, some kind of appeal I could make through eye contact, but he kept shifting his dark gaze from my eyes. He had high, broad cheekbones, and his mouth was not overly large. A faint shadow of hair framed his upper lip, but it looked more like a dirt than a mustache. He kept talking to me, telling me I probably never had a man like him. I thought, if I could just keep him talking... If I could just win his trust, maybe I could get him to put his weapon down. Maybe I could figure out a way to run. I was trying to learn anything, any clue to who the monster in the dark was. So Jennifer decides to tell him she's afraid of knives, that she can't relax until he puts it down and outside. A lie to give herself time to figure something out. He concedes and agrees to set the knife down outside. She tells him she has to pee and tells him she wants to watch him put the knife down and then we'll go to the bathroom. She grabs a blanket knowing she was naked and wanted to be ready at the first opportunity she could run. As they walk towards the door and the bathroom, she tries to remember how tall he is in relation to herself and thinks to herself that he was about six feet tall. As they reach the bathroom, she turns on the light, getting yet another glimpse of him. He continues towards the front door and throws a knife outside the door without even stepping a foot outside. She knew she had to come up with another plan. She knew the back door was her only other chance to escape. She knew she had to come up with another plan. She knew the back door was her only other chance. She asks if she can make him a drink, trying to stall as much as possible. On her kitchen table, she notices empty beer cans, a pack of cigarettes from her purse, and her wallet, and realizes that he had been there a lot longer than she had ever realized. Before he could ever come back into the kitchen to check on her and make sure that the back door was locked, Jennifer was able to run out and towards the next building as he followed behind her. She saw a light on at the house nearby and ran over, pounding on the door, begging to be let in. She knew he was still watching her. The couple let Jennifer in and called 911. They turned off all the lights and could see her rapist still circling the house. Oh my gosh. Isn't that terrifying? He's like literally circling the house and the guy, it was a couple who let her in. Uh Uh-huh. And the wife, I'm assuming, the woman, recognized her as a student from the local university. Mm. And the the husband, the man... um, was by the door the whole time with a bat in his hand because he was pretty sure that he would try to break into the house. So, like, they were so scared. So, anyways. Was she living by herself in that She was living by herself that night. She had spent... So, that she had spent the day with her boyfriend. She did have, like, a long-term boyfriend. They pretty much had planned on getting married. Mm -hmm. Um, They had spent the day together. They had fallen asleep together that night. But he ended up getting up around 11 p.m. 
and left. He left. They didn't live together. So he had just fallen asleep there. He got oh, up he around 11 home. and went home. So they that like that's kind of a timeline too. like they knew that he must have gotten there shortly after mm-hmm. the boyfriend um, had left. But she was technically living by herself. Okay. Police drove her to the hospital where she recalls that the doctor wasn't too happy about being awakened in the middle of the night. She says he was sloppy and unsympathetic and didn't want him touching her. She lay in bed waiting after the rape kit had been completed, wishing she could just take off her skin and leave her body that had suddenly become a crime scene. Eventually, Detective Mike Galden appears, and as he walked her through the next steps, she could hear a woman crying nearby. She asked him what happened to her, and it's then that she finds out that she had not been the only rape victim that night. Mary Reynolds had also been raped. They were sure it had been the same guy, and it was then that she felt pure hatred for her assailant. So the rest of her kind of story is fueled by this hate Mm -hmm. that she has for him, and she wants to make sure, of course, she wants to make sure that she does whatever it takes to make sure that they get him, that he is locked up, and that he could never do this again to anybody else. But just kind of remember that, like, she is doing the things that she's doing fueled by hate. Yes. And which, again, is understandable, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Mm -hmm. she was just raped. She doesn't want this to happen to anyone else. So she's going to do what she has to do to make sure justice is served. Right. The rest of the night and day is a bit of a blur. But just hours after her ordeal, after a jaded doctor swabbed her for semen samples in a hospital, she sat in a police station with Detective Mike Galden, combing through photos and working up a composite. She picked out his eyebrows, his nose, his pencil-thin mustache. She actually picked out a photo. Jennifer then had to figure out what to do next. Her parents didn't live nearby, so she ended up going to her boyfriend Paul's parents' house with her sister Janet. She remembers having to talk to her parents and her mom asking, Do you think it was someone who saw you in your leotard at Spa Lady? I'm not sure what Spa Lady is, but it must have been like a like a woman's gym type place. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the first things her mom asked her like her mom says oh jennifer do you think it was someone who saw you in your leotard at spa lady oh like it was her fault like that it she was, was her fault something yeah like it was her, it, as which is we one know of, right which is <laughs> one of like it was like the first thing it wasn't like are you okay like right what do you need you know that rape i love culture you. really gets you hmm? that rape rape culture. culture yeah exactly And so when she arrives at Paul's house, she remembers feeling embarrassed to face his mother, and she could tell that his mom had wished that she had kept her rape a secret. She wondered if being raped by a black man made her a less desirable perspective for her son. Like, can Mm. you imagine? Like, you were just raped, and again, like, all you're thinking about is, my mom thinks it might have been because of something I was wearing. Right you know, this guy that I've been dating that I have every intent to marry, his mom now probably not only like wishes I had kept this a secret, but maybe now I'm just not good enough for him because I was raped and not just raped, but I was raped by a black man. Like that somehow makes it worse. She wasn't, she wasn't racist, but you also have to understand like they lived in North Carolina, which is kind of conservative. Mm -hmm. You know, it was 1984. I think just based on the times, like that was just, how people thought and how a lot of people still think i'm sure yeah it's racist (laughs) (laughs) it's it's racist in the sense like yes thinking that way is racist but it's also like the i'm not justifying the race thing it's definitely racist i don't think it was like inherently it was like the town Mm -hmm. that 
they were in. It was the way people thought. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that in the book, she never mentions anything about race, but all of these things are definitely, we'll talk about it later. But one of the reasons why Ronald Cotton felt like he had been picked up was because he had a history of dating white women and the, they didn't like that. Yeah. So it was definitely like that kind of a town where yeah. that's what he thought. He's like, I know that they've got me singled out because I have a history of dating white women and it was two white women who were raped. Right. So, yeah. Oh, poor thing. She was told by Paul's mom that she had to sleep in his sister's room because, quote unquote, it wouldn't look right that she and Paul would sleep together. Oh, okay. Yeah, because like, how would it look, you know? Oh, how dare to she? which Jennifer remembers wanting to say, don't worry, I have no intention of having sex the night after I've been raped. Ugh. Can you imagine? That's terrible. It's freaking sad. Who is this mom? I don't like her. Have you seen, um, Dear John? No. Dirty John. Dirty I, John, the I haven't new one? seen it, no. Okay. So, for those of you who have seen Dirty John, um, the family reminds me a lot of Betty's family. So you need to watch it so I know okay. what I'm talking about. But it's basically like a very proper family who does who cares a lot about what people think. Mm-hmm. And so like who would have known in the town that Jennifer had slept in her boyfriend's room that night? Yeah. She wanted to sleep there because she would feel safe, not right. because she was in the mood to like <laughs> you know have sex or anything yeah but the mom was thinking you know what are the people in the town going to think like that's the furthest thing from jennifer's mind at that point a week later jennifer sat across the table from six men holding numbered cards there was no one-way mirror to shield her each one walked up and repeated the words shut up or i'll cut you jennifer picked number five that's my rapist she tells galden She had never been so sure of anything. His name was Ronald Cotton, and he was the same age as she. A local man headed down the quote-unquote wrong road. He had already been in trouble with the law. He had been arrested on first-degree burglary charges and had served 18 months in prison for attempted sexual assault. Cotton had insisted that the relationship resulting in the assault charge was consensual and that he was being unfairly targeted by police because he liked to date white women. When Thompson picked him out of the lineup, everyone was sure that they had the right man. Mm. So Ronald, in his part of the book, um, talks about the sexual assault charge that he had on his record as something that he just obviously hated. But he knows that the fact that he had that on his record further kind of like confirmed Mm -hmm. to everyone. Oh, like he had to be the one. But what he says happened is he was dating a girl when he was young mm-hmm. um, and she was a white girl but they were kind of just like messing around they weren't like together together um, and I think he had like snuck into her room or something like just like teenage kids like yeah. they were fooling around and his her parents find him oh. and so what they say is well, obviously like they press charges they make it sound like he was assaulting the daughter because mm-hmm. it's better for them, for the town to think that the daughter was being assaulted. And mm-hmm. in reality, she just liked this black guy and was messing around with him. So that's how those charges came about. So this poor guy, I, He's exactly. The worst it was just thought. like, yeah, He's just trying to date people and live his life normally. And I don't like those other people. The town, town was out to get him <laughs> is what it sounds like. So. 
Ronald's actions and past hadn't helped his case. He was nervous. He got his dates mixed up when he was asked where he was the night before. He stated he had been with his brother and then at a friend's house and then finished the night out at a club when in reality he had been at home sleeping and his family could verify all of this. So he also talks about this. He talks about how he was a young kid. It was the summer. Mm -hmm. He's like, I was just every day was a blur. And I think us being in quarantine right now, like can attest to the fact that yes, every day can seem like a blur. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there's days in this quarantine where I can think I did something the day before when in reality I had done that like three days ago. So imagine when we were younger, when we were 21, I don't know (laughs) (laughs) what we were, you know, like what was going on, what you were doing the day before. So like, that's what he kind of like says, like, listen, I was a young guy. Mm -hmm. I had no worries in the world. Mm -hmm. I was just doing my thing. Yeah. It was summer. Like, I had been out and about, but yes, that night I was actually asleep on the couch and his family all gave alibis for him. But the fact that he had gone in there that day and said he was somewhere else mm-hmm. looked bad. just looked bad. A piece of foam was missing from his shoe, similar to a piece found at the crime scene. Cotton stated in the book he used to wear his shoes to work and they had he had spilled dirty water all over them. So he attempted to wash them in the washer. And so when he did that, the insole started falling apart. But those shoes that he was wearing were shoes kind of like a lot of guys had. They weren't mm-hmm. like special shoes, but there was a piece of foam from an insole found at the crime scene. And when oh. they went to his house to search his house, they found a piece of a very similar foam okay. at his house. But his explanation for that is, listen, I worked at a restaurant as mm-hmm. like a busboy type of thing. He had spilled a bunch of like dirty water all over his shoes. And so he figured as a young kid, it's fine. I'll throw them in the washer, not realizing like it could probably damage the shoes. Mm -hmm. And so they started disintegrating. But he was like, I didn't care. Like I wore them to work. They got dirty. Like I didn't think I needed a new pair. So I just kept wearing them kind of until they like gave out. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they found that those were basically like the only two pieces of like quote unquote evidence that they had was the fact that his alibi didn't check out and that they had found this piece of foam but it wasn't circumstantial evidence that had brought ronald cotton down it was jennifer thompson in fact the other woman who had been raped that night mary reynolds she was to be tried separately because she had identified another man as her attacker and because she was highly emotional they didn't think that she would make for a very good witness so even though at the beginning of all of this the police had said there was two rapes Mm -hmm. they're connected you know there's the probability that it was the same person is really really high the moment that mary picked someone else they were like oh no two separate things it's not the same thing anymore yeah you know and she's always crying she's She's unreliable she's unreliable Mm -hmm. the evidence at trial included a flashlight that was found in cotton's home that resembled one that was used by the assailant the rubber from cotton's shoe that was consistent with the rubber found at one of the crime scenes but overwhelmingly the evidence rested on the identification and the eyewitness identification procedures used by police at the time jennifer recalls thinking i knew that on some level i had to perform i knew that if i went up there and told my story and never flinched it would be one thing and if i went up there and just cried and couldn't get a sentence out it would be another the jury would think i was so highly emotional how could i have possibly gotten a good look at my assailant ronald cotton might have been on the one on trial but i would be judged too yep can you imagine having to like Think about all of this. I mean, she did a great job because 
in the moment that she was being raped, what she thought of was, I need to remember his features. Mm -hmm. I need to figure out a plan to get out of here. She did all of the right things, all Mm -hmm. of the things that we're kind of told to do in um, like a moment of, I don't know, like. In an assault. Well, like in an assault, but also like. In a moment of panic. Panic. Yeah. Like in a moment where you're like not prepared, (laughs) you're kind of told like, okay, do these things. She did all of those things, but then she also had to prove that she was a reliable person to believe, even though he was on top of her, she she was looking at him, like all of these things. And then to think, okay, now I have to like convince everyone that I'm right. Yeah. Julie's done. Under cross-examination, she was asked to clarify to the court that all she was wearing that night was underwear, but the defense insisted on calling them panties in each subsequent question. He wanted to know if she had pulled down the blinds enough so that no one saw her in her panties. Every time the defense said the word, they loaded it as if only someone who would ask, who would be asking for rape would wear them. He got her to admit that she had a fear of waking up to finding someone in her room watching her as she slept. If you have a fear of someone standing over your bed watching you, would it not seem more appropriate for you to go to bed with some kind of nightgown on or something? To which she responded, I don't know that it makes any difference what I would have worn that night. I think if I had on blue jeans and a sweatshirt that would have not made any difference in the world and if I walked outside my bedroom stark naked that doesn't give anybody the right to take what's not theirs and this goes back to the other episode that we had on rape culture about how I understand in this situation he was innocent but this happens in every single case it seems like which is why no one wants to ever come forward and actually prosecute the person who did it is this constant blaming of the victim that just never seems to go away. Mm -hmm. You know, in this case, obviously we know it was a wrongful conviction because that's kind of like, we know that I've already told you guys that, but the book does a really good job of laying out just regardless of whether or not it was a wrongful conviction of explaining what a rape victim has to go through. Mm -hmm. So you obviously we get Ronald's side, which is really good because in this case we need to know all of that information. But if you're just ever wondering what it's like to be a woman who's been raped going through the process, this she does such an incredible job of just giving you like little examples of like what people have told her, how Mm -hmm. people have looked at her, like what she felt she had to do to prove to people, you know, like this happened to her happened. So yeah, I mean, being, being a rape victim is, is probably one of the hardest kinds of, it's one of the, well, we already know statistically it's one of the hardest to convict, right? It's one of the least convicted crimes out of everything, which you wouldn't expect that to be because being raped is such a harsh you know, thing to go through. It's a difficult crime. It's not like someone stole your shoes. Right. You know, they, <laughs> it's, it's a terrible crime. And yet to be convicted of rape is really difficult. I think the statistics, statistics were that only 1% of rapists actually get convicted. Which is nothing. Mm-mm. In January 1985, Ronald Cotton was convicted to life in prison by a jury of one count of rape and one count of burglary. And so something kind of interesting, interesting, but also not very uncommon, is that it was an all-white jury, 
um, four black people had been called in to be part of the jury, but the judge dismissed one himself and then made sure none of the others sat on the actual jury. The um, His team, his lawyers, tried to move for a mistrial, but unfortunately nothing worked, and so the judge remained, or the jury remained an all-white jury. In prison, Ronald Cotton spent his nights writing letters to lawyers, newspapers, and anyone who would listen. He spent his days pounding the punching bag. He joined the prison choir. He read the Bible. He tried believe, He tried to believe what his father kept telling him, that someday justice would prevail. About a year after Ronald had been convicted, he walked past a group of new inmates and one caught his eye. He was unsure why, but he had a bad feeling about this one in particular. Later on, he saw the inmate outside on the yard and decided to go up to him. He looked at his short hair, his thin mustache, and the mouth that wasn't too wide but was full. He was light-skinned, lighter than him, and it flashed in his mind. It was the composite sketch of the suspect and the rates that he had been convicted for. Stop. Mm-hmm. Stop. Was mm-hmm. it him? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he remembers having seen the sketch in the paper. The new guy looked just like him, he thought. He introduced himself to him and found out that he, too, was from Burlington. Cotton went on to tell him that he looked like the suspect in the sketch for the crime that he had been locked up for. He asked him if he had anything to do with with it, to which he sneakily smiled and said no. He later found out that the new inmate's name was Bobby Poole, and he was in prison for rape. He managed to take a picture with him a couple, like, months or, like, a year later. Mm -hmm. Um, He had been talking to this guy, Bobby Poole, after his, um, I think it was his sister, um, Ronald's sister had come to visit and Bobby Poole happened to see her and made some stupid remark like, oh, like you should hook me up with her or Fucking something like Bobby that. Bobby Poole. And so Bobby or Ronald obviously had this like deep hatred for <laughs> Bobby Poole, but wanted to play it cool because he also just didn't want to have any like trouble while mm-hmm. he was in, in prison. So He played it cool and thought, you know, when I get the chance, I'm going to see if I can get a picture with him. And so he asked him at some point, like, hey, do you want to get a picture? I can send it to my sister on your behalf type of thing. Like, great. So he does. He gets a picture with him and he sends it to his lawyers telling him what his suspicions are about Bobby Poole. So it's years later um, that Cotton's lawyers find out that the Burlington police had actually shot Poole in the leg outside of the Brookwood Garden Apartments the night that he had been arrested for the rape that he was in prison for. Mm -hmm. It was the same complex that Jennifer lived in when she was assaulted years earlier and was only half a mile away from when Mary lived. Wow. So like he just solved his own. (laughs) He really did. He literally was like, oh, my God, I think I know like who did this and so cotton had to go on in prison for a crime he didn't commit living amongst the man he was sure had actually committed the crime Poole ended up bragging to other inmates that cotton was actually doing time for the crime he had committed cotton like i said hated him and at one point planned to kill him and he tells his dad this like he tells his dad like i'm going to kill him because he took my life from Mm -hmm. me so i'm taking his from him but he couldn't go through with it. He decided that if he was, if he did, he would be no better than Bobby Poole and would deserve to be in prison. He decided that he had entered prison an innocent man and would one day leave prison the same way. Oh, that's so nice. Oh. 
Um, so Cotton's attorney filed an appeal, and the North Carolina Supreme Court overturned the conviction because the second victim, Mary, had actually picked out the other another man out of the lineup, and the trial court did not allow any of this as evidence to be heard by the jury. So in November 1987, Cotton was retried, but this time they tried him for both rapes. So they included Mary's rape mm. with Jennifer's. Unfortunately... Mary took back what she said and told them that she was just scared the first time to identify um, Ronald as her assailant. Oh, no. And so testified that it was actually Ronald who had raped her that night. Um, his, his lawyers tried to keep Mary and Jennifer outside of the court's like the courtroom while they each testified because they wanted to make sure that Mary just didn't go in there and basically like reiterate what Jennifer was saying to mm -hmm. make sure that their stories lined up. Mm -hmm. But the judge denied that. And so Mary and Jennifer were able to listen to each other's testimonies. The thing is at this new trial, the witnesses would get to take a look at Bobby Poole who had been subpoenaed by Cotton's lawyer and Cotton Ronald was sure that Mary and Jennifer would see him and know that he had been the one who had raped them yeah. all along and that he would be set free. But unfortunately, Jennifer being like the great witness that she was, she stood strong and remained firm on the fact that it had been Ronald at her house that night. She looked directly at Poole and then looked at Cotton 15 feet away and still said, nope, it it's wasn't Cotton. like, yeah, it wasn't Bobby. It was it was Ronald. She says, Cotton is the man who raped me, she told the jury. They said, are you sure? She says, yes, I'm sure. And even though Mary was less convincing, she did end up pointing at Cotton. And so Cotton was convinced that with the possibility of him getting out at this new trial, that they had convinced Mary to stand with Jennifer and, you know, basically confirm that, yes, it was him that night. So Jennifer had struggled a lot during the 11 years that cotton had been in prison so she wanted to make sure that she did whatever it took to make to like keep her rapist in prison mm -hmm. and she says it's really sad again if you're interested in the story read the book because she does an incredible job of explaining what it's like for the rape victim but she says she knew people around her were sorry for her situation but it just didn't seem like it was that big of a deal because it was just sex which is how I think a lot of people view rapes, right? Like mm -hmm. it's just, it's just sex, you know, it's sex by someone that you don't know or that's unwanted or whatever they the case is, but it's just traumatizing, it right? And she says Jennifer remembers that there were many times she wished that her rapist had cut her face, broken her nose, or left some sort of physical proof on her to prove to other people that she was in physical pain. Yeah, um, she ended up moving into a two-bedroom townhouse. Uh, making sure that the bedrooms are on the second floor and that and so she says that every night she did a bunch of different things but like one of the things she made sure to do every single night before going to bed was putting like a, the biggest piece of furniture she had in her room Aww. in front of her door as just like an, an added yeah like security measure wait did her and the boyfriend not continue being together it's coming up oh, okay sorry <laughs> Jennifer says, I had done everything right. All of the things girls are told growing up. Don't go out jogging by yourself at night. Lock the doors in your car. 
avoid dark alleys. I knew them all. I had done none of the things to put myself in danger. I had been asleep in my bed. My doors locked. I had been alone. I hadn't been drinking. I had done everything right, and still I found myself at the end of a knife blade. So what did she? So what did that say about how vulnerable I was? To make matters worse, one night, Paul and Jennifer went out for ice cream, and Jennifer could tell that there was something going on um, in Paul's mind, and so she kind of waited to see if he could find the words mm-hmm. to bring whatever was up. But what came next was unexpected, to say the least. He told her he couldn't understand why she just didn't fight back. Oh, no. Jennifer tried to explain to him that she did what she thought she had to do to survive. Mm -hmm. She felt shocked at the fact that she had to defend herself from the one person she felt the closest to, which is her boyfriend, who, again, like she planned on marrying. Um, He then asked, he then asked, did you like it? No. (gasps) You know, fuck him. (laughs) She doesn't need him. Mm Mm-mm. And she knew then that Paul felt that she didn't fight hard enough and that somehow being raped at knife point might have been enjoyable. Cool. Bye. So she remembered um, a case that I think happened a couple weeks after her case. Um, The victim's name in this one was Deborah Sykes. She was four years older than Jennifer. She was raped, sodomized, and stabbed 16 times on her way to work. Mm. Her killer left her to die in a field, and Jennifer wondered if she had fought differently, if she had fought more, had she too died in her bed. Yeah. Or if Deborah had fought less or differently, if she had been able to walk out of the field alive to take her place among those who survive, which Jennifer calls the walking dead. No. Oh, that is so sad. sad. Because that's probably exactly what it feels like. You know, like, no one understands what it's like. And Mm -hmm. so here you are having to pretend. She talks about that a lot, you know, like, when she's around her family or Paul's family, having to just pretend like she's okay. Yeah. Because her feeling and, like, acting how she would want Mm -hmm. would have not been accepted by those around her or would have scared those around her. In 1994, two new lawyers, at the request of the chief appellate defender, took over Cotton's defense. They filed a motion for appropriate relief on the grounds of inadequate appeal counsel. They also filed a motion for DNA testing that was granted in October 1994. In the spring of 1995, his case was given a major break. The Burlington Police Department turned over all evidence, which included the assailant semen for DNA testing to the defense. The samples from Jennifer's files were too deteriorated to be conclusive, but the samples from Mary's vaginal swab and underwear were submitted to PCR testing, And so I googled what PCR testing is, and it's a method widely used to rapidly make millions to billions of copies of a specific DNA sample, allowing scientists to take a very small sample of DNA and amplify it to a large enough amount to study in detail. Okay. That's cool, right? Because when all of this happened, DNA wasn't a thing. Okay. But they kept her rape kit. So they talk about it. I can't remember if it was in one of the interviews. I think it was in one of the interviews I watched, maybe the Frontline special. They talk about how lucky um, Ronald was in this situation because most of the time mm-hmm. rape kits are disposed. As we of. know. And so it, it was kind of a miracle that after so many years, yeah. they still had they still had Marys. So that was kind of also like a huge, well, it was like the major break in the case mm-hmm. was the DNA. Um, the results showed no match to cotton. At the defense attorney's request, the results were then sent to the State Bureau of Investigation's DNA database containing the DNA patterns of convicted violent felons in North Carolina prisons. 
The state's database showed a match with the convict who had earlier confessed to the crime, Bobby Poole. Fucking Bobby Poole. Mm-hmm. Um, when the DNA test results were reported in May of 1995, the district attorney and the defense motion to dismiss all charges. And on June 30th, 1995, Cotton was officially cleared of all charges and released from prison. Yay. In July of 1995, the governor of North Carolina officially pardoned Cotton after Cotton had served 10 and a half years in prison. And so then we kind of jump into what Jennifer's thinking at this time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Right. She because must be feeling. she's like, no, I'm sure I saw him. Right. And so she talks about in the book, like, when the detective Mike comes to her home. So Jennifer remembers the knock on the door of her home came out of the blue. Mike Galden, who had been there for her as more than just a detective over the years, hadn't just stopped by to casually say hello. It had been 11 years and standing in Thompson's kitchen, Galden struggled to break the news. Jennifer, he said, you were wrong. Ronald Cotton didn't rape you. It was Bobby Poole. And for a moment, nothing registered in her mind, in her mind. And then everything started spinning. There was new evidence, Galden explained, DNA test. And so he actually says, like, you know the O.J. Simpson case? Mm-hmm. Because that was what was going on at the time. And uh-huh. she was like, oh, like, that's... Because DNA was so new at the time. Like, oh, the only way she could, like... Ex- yeah, she could understand what that meant was yeah. by referencing the O.J. Simpson case. New scientific proof that hadn't been available before officially mm-hmm. proves that Bobby Poole was your rapist. And so 11 years of nightmares of Cotton's face taunting her in the dark, 11 years of struggling to move on, of building a life with her. So she did break up, obviously, with Paul after that comment. Um, But she did meet someone. So she and her husband, and she had triplets. Um, Yeah. But 11 years of also being wrong. Mm -hmm. There must be some mistake. She could still hear his voice, shut up or I'll kill you. She could still see his face in her head. She could still feel the hot flush of hatred in the courtroom. Ronald Cotton was a man she had fled from that terrible summer night, wrapped only in a blanket, collapsing on a neighbor's porch. Ronald Cotton was a man who had invaded her body, her mind, and her life. Ronald Cotton was a rapist she had put away forever. But how could she have been so wrong? She was still so very unsure. Mike Galden tried to comfort her, pointing out that others had also been at fault, including two juries, two judges, Mm -hmm. detectives, and himself. The whole system failed when it condemned Ronald Cotton, Galden said, but it was about to be set right. Only an extraordinary sequence of events had made that possible. Cotton's persistence in proclaiming his innocence, a law professor's curiosity, the fact that sophisticated DNA tests, which hadn't been available 11 years ago, could now be used. The law professor, Richard Rosen, of the University of North Carolina, had taken on the case. Troubled that a man had been sentenced to life, based almost exclusively on eyewitness testimony. In so many cases, eyewitnesses can be unreliable, Rosen said. At that point, I had no idea how strong and compelling Thompson was. I'm not sure any jury in the world would have acquitted him in the face of her testimony. Rosen's probing led to DNA samples from Cotton and Poole. The police, by some fluke, had saved sheets and other Mm -hmm. evidence from the rape scenes, evidence usually destroyed after a case is decided. In the end... Galden told Thompson, the system worked. An innocent man would be freed. Ronald Cotton, Galden said, is a very lucky man. But Jennifer couldn't deal with the fact that she had been single-handedly responsible for putting him away in question. How do I give someone back 11 years? So much much for her had happened, right, in those 11 years. So she can't, she couldn't, like, 
come to terms with the fact that like everything she had been able to experience the good and the bad she had taken from someone Mm -hmm. like that's so that's so really heavy. heavy yeah so the story becomes nationwide news and in 1996 a producer called jennifer asking if she would like to be a part of a story he was doing for frontline on pbs it was going to be a story about how eyewitnesses can make mistakes and at first she didn't think she could or wanted to do it She had spent so much time trying to leave all of that behind her, moving away to try escaping the town in which it had all happened, only to end up on national television talking about the worst night of her life and then having to admit that she had mistakenly put someone away for 11 years. She discussed the pros and the cons, and ultimately she decided to do it. For her, it was the beginning of a shift in herself, of letting go of all of the hatred she had inside. The producer explained it would help her understand why her memory had done that, why her memory had made it so that her rapist was unrecognizable to her. She agreed to do the show, but only as long as she didn't have any contact with Ronald, who she couldn't like face yet. Oh, so she's she's like, I'll do the show, but I can't. Yeah. Like I want nothing to do with him. I don't want to see him. And so a couple months later, when the show finally aired, she couldn't bear to watch it. So she had her husband record. The show was actually called what Jennifer saw. And she watched it alone the following day. And she says she just like broke down after watching it. Um, and she recalls that at the end of the show, um, Ronald told the interviewer that he wondered why Jennifer had never reached out to him. Oh, like he wanted to hear from her kind of like why, how, yeah. you know, like anything from her. His words stayed with her and she knew that even though she didn't know how she could ever ask for forgiveness, she had to at least try. So she called Mike, her detective, and he knew instantly what she was calling about. He gave her Ronald's phone number, and a few weeks later, they drove 50 miles to a church in the town where she had been raped. She and her husband met with Ronald and his wife, Robin, and she finally faced Ronald and said, I'm sorry, if I spent every day for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to how I feel. Can you ever forgive me? Ronald knew then, looking her in the eyes, that if jennifer could turn back time and change the way things had turned out Mm -hmm. that she would have and he told her that he forgave her he told her that he wasn't angry at her and that he didn't want her to spend the rest of her life looking over her shoulder thinking he might be out to get her or her family he's so sweet for two hours they sat and talked while their families paced outside she asked him about prison he asked why she had been so sure i don't know is all she could say You just look like the man who raped me, but she knew that wasn't good enough. Cotton and Bobby Poole bore only a superficial resemblance, except that both were black men. Thompson and Cotton talked about the pitfalls of memory, the power of faith, the miracle of DNA. They talked about the torturous journey that had brought them together. They talked about Bobby Poole and Cotton says... We were both his victims. Yeah. Which is so true. Yeah. Both of them. And he knew exactly what he was doing. Especially when he confronted Bobby about it. Like, he already knew that he, he knew was serving he time was, for yeah, his crime. He, he didn't care. bragging around the prison. Like, oh, yeah, there's that dummy over there who's serving time oh. for something I did. It was, yeah, it was really awful. He was, like, a really horrible person. Um, Jennifer actually tries. Well, she asked Ronald, like, do you think if I reach out to him if he would meet with me. Like she wanted to face him. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of as like a 
like closure yeah. for her you know like she had finally really like met with ronald she faced him she apologized so she wanted to meet with the person who had actually done this to her and he's you know he tells her you know he's like a really evil person you know you can reach out to him but i wouldn't get your hopes up he's probably not going to respond to you and so she does write him a letter but she never hears from him and then she finds out a couple years later that um he actually died of cancer in prison Hmm. ate him up anyways what'd you say (laughs) cancer ate him up oh it ate him up. like the evil inside of him ate him up (laughs) you know like I feel like that's true. I'm sorry. You threw me <laughs> off. Huh? You threw me off with that one. Ate him up. <laughs> I was like, what ate him up in prison? Oh, the cancer. Oh, okay. <laughs> so since then, Jennifer and Ronald have remained in each other's lives. They travel the country um, together doing speaking engagements and talk shows, obviously like universities and stuff, um, in which they talk about the unreliability of eyewitness testimony. Um, together, they just decided that they would do everything in their power to move forward and do what they can to ensure that this doesn't happen yeah. to anyone else, which is like a huge feat to take on. But oh, yeah. obviously, if anyone can shed some light on this and like some perspective, it would be them. Mm-hmm. Um, Ronald taught Jennifer about forgiveness, healing and faith and um, taught her not to feel like a victim anymore. And so why is it that Jennifer was so sure Ronald Cotton had been her rapist? So this is where we get into, like, what the psychology of it, but also what the police departments do to, they're not purposely doing it, but almost like what they're doing that will facilitate uh, mistaken identities. So here are some factors leading to mistaken identities. Some of the factors associated with mistaken identifications are matters of common sense and everyday experience. For example, all of us recognize the difficulty of making an accurate identification based on a quick glance as opposed to a long look. Similarly, you don't have to be a cognitive scientist to know that lighting, distance, and witness physical condition, for example, if they're tired, can also compromise an identification. Research over the past few decades has revealed much about how vision works. At the heart of the problem is a fragility of memory, and we now know that memory is not like a videotape recorder. Mm -hmm. So, But here are some of the less obvious factors that have led to eyewitness mistakes. Um, So one of them is stress, which obviously Jennifer was under. While many people tend to believe that stress sharpens the senses... Research consistently shows that people who are under stress when they observe an event are more likely to misidentify the culprit. Another is the presence of a weapon, which, again, he had a knife up to Mm -hmm. her neck. Eyewitnesses confronted by a weapon are apt to focus on the weapon rather than the person holding it. So you're Mm, focusing on, like, the knife, the gun, whatever it is, rather than really focusing. So as much as Jennifer was trying to focus on it, just... I mean, like mentally, your brain, yeah. what they're, what it's focusing on is the weapon to her neck. Um, the next one is confidence level, which again, Jennifer was super confident mm-hmm. that it was Ronald Cotton. Eyewitnesses who express great confidence in their identifications are actually no more accurate than those who admit to uncertainty. Confident eyewitnesses actually have higher error rates. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't have expected that. I wouldn't have expected it, but it's true. Um, another, which is also, um, like in this case is cross racial identification. 
Eyewitnesses are less accurate when asked to identify someone of a different race. The factor affects members of all racial groups. So in this case, the fact that she was white and he was black made her less reliable, but it would have also been the other way around, like a black person trying to identify a white person would be less accurate. And I think that just has to do with the fact that like we're probably around like I'm Mexican. I'm probably around more Mexicans than I am white people or black people or whatever the case. And so I'm used to their features. Mm -hmm. Um, And your family. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. So that like obviously makes total sense. Um, The other one is pressure to choose. So eyewitnesses are more likely to make mistakes when they feel pressure to make an identification, even if they are told that they don't have to make a choice. So obviously for her, there was pressure on two sides, pressure from herself, Mm -hmm. wanting to make sure that the person who did this to her ended up in prison but also pressure from the police department who wanted to make sure that they had the person who had just raped two women in one night um influence after the fact so eyewitnesses are more likely to make mistakes when they rehash events with other observers in these situations witnesses may alter their memories so that they can be in agreement with others so we kind of see that with mary in the second trial Mm -hmm. transference Eyewitnesses may make a mistaken identification because they saw the person they identify on a different occasion. So if you've seen someone who just happens to look like who you're like trying to think of, mm-hmm. but you've seen them in the past, you're more likely to just identify with that person because you, you've seen them. I don't know. Like you've got like a memory of them yeah. already. Um, Your brain kind of connects the connects two. Connects the two. Yeah. Um, if there's mul- multiple perpetrators. <laughs> All the perpetrators. Perpetrators. <laughs> The Dementors. <laughs> the Dementors was the scariest <laughs> prison. <laughs> the next one is multiple perpetrators. Identification accuracy decreases as the number of people involved in an event increases. Makes sense. Um, absence of an employment boost. This is when eyewitnesses who regularly interact with the public, like store clerks, um, cashiers, bank tellers, they're actually no better at making identification than than other people. So a lot of people would think, yeah, like, oh, like you see people all day. You must be really good at like making out features or remembering. But Mm -hmm. it's actually not true. Like they see so many people that kind of starts to blur. Yeah. And everything jumbles together. Mm. So those are reasons why people will have, you know, will have mistaken identities Mm -hmm. or mistaken eyewitness identities. Um, And so the next part that I think is important to talk about is traditional eyewitness identification practices and the problems with them. So in a standard lineup, the lineup administrator typically knows who the suspect is. Research shows that administrators often provide unintentional cues to the eyewitness about which person to pick from the lineup. Oh, okay. Unintentionally, but I mean, it happens. Um, the next is without instructions from the administrator, the eyewitness often assumes that the perpetrator of the crime is one of those presented in the lineup. And this often leads to the selection of a person despite doubts. So they feel like they have to make a decision because it has to be, it has to be someone there, Uh even though it, it might not be any of them. They're just presenting people to her. And she's like, well, if they're presenting them to me, it must be because it's one of the people in there. When in right. reality, that's not the case all of the time. It's actually not the case the majority of the time. Well, I'm assuming Bobby wasn't in that one. Bobby wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. Um, in a standard lineup, the lineup administrator may choose to compose a live or photo lineup where non-suspect fillers do not match the witness's description of the perpetrator. 
When fillers are selected that do not resemble the witness's description, it can cause the suspect to stand out to a witness because of the composition of the lineup. The unintentional suggestion can lead an eyewitness to identify a particular individual in a photo array or lineup. So you're basically like, there's two or three that look a lot like the person you said it looked like, and then the rest are all people who look nothing like it. So mm-hmm. suddenly those two or three are singled out. Are singled out. Um, in a standard lineup, the lineup administrator may not elicit or document a statement from the witness articulating their level of confidence in an identification made during the identification process. A witness's confidence can be particularly susceptible to influence by information provided to the witness after the identification process. Research shows that information provided to a witness after an identification suggesting that the witness selected the right person can dramatically, yet artificially, increase the witness's confidence in the identification. Therefore, it's critically important to capture an eyewitness's level of confidence at the point in time that an identification is made. So in one of the like YouTube videos that I watched, they did a study or like they showed a study Mm -hmm. where they had like two groups, like a control group. And then the other one, um, they showed them like a 10 second video of some guy doing some like shady thing. And then after they watched it, they told them, Oh, like this guy just dropped a bomb down this like hole. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they gave them like three or four pictures of people. And then they were like, Oh, did it look more like this one or this one? Okay, and now this one or this one, kind of like when you do your vision test. Mm -hmm. And so to one group, they told them, okay, great. Like the suspect was in that group of pictures we just showed you. The other one, they didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. And then they asked them, like, how confident are you that this is like the person? The people who were told that the suspect was in the group, Mm -hmm. their like um, confidence levels were like through the roof. They were all so sure that in this grainy like 10 second video, they could make out everything about this person. In the other group where they weren't told anything when they asked them, their like confidence levels were really, really low. So it just came to show that like if you're confirming with them like suddenly you feel like oh i knew it you know like Mm -hmm. i was so right like i got this right even identifications that sound quite convincing can be mistaken the human memory doesn't act like a machine accurately recording storing and retrieving images on demand eyewitnesses like all of us construct and interpret what they see as they see it you don't just record an event and then play it back in all of the cases where eyewitnesses were wrong the real perpetrator was not in the initial lineup In this case, Jennifer remembers thinking that one of the men in the lineup must be the suspect. When the real perpetrator was not in the lineup, witnesses have had a very difficult time recognizing that, and so they pick the person who most looks like them. Unfortunately, eyewitness testimony has two key properties. One is that it's often unreliable, and the second is that it's highly persuasive to jurors. For example, in Jennifer's case, when she spent five minutes looking at the photo lineup, She and Detective Galden thought that they were being careful, but in actuality, recognition memory is quite rapid. If someone takes longer than 10 to 15 seconds to make an identification, it is likely because they are not using reliable recognition memory. A better way to do this would be to show photos one at a time so that she could compare them to her memory rather than to one another. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So a reinforcement actually alters memory dramatically. So Mm -hmm. the guy was saying... Like, if she actually remembered what he looked like, when you're given the photo, like the individual photo, she would 
really quickly be able to say, oh, that's the guy. Mm -hmm. If it takes longer than the 10 to 15 seconds, it's because she doesn't actually have a very accurate um, vivid like memory, memory of, of the person. And so it makes it even harder when she's given five photos or six photos of people. Mm -hmm. And so rather than um, like comparing each individual picture to what she's remembering, she's comparing it to one another. Um, so again, like it just leads to mistaken mm -hmm. identifying. So a couple ways to improve the accuracy of eyewitness identifications. The first is called the double blind procedure. A double-blind lineup is one in which neither the administrator nor the eyewitness knows who the suspect is. Oh, okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Right? So this prevents the administrator of the lineup from providing inadvertent or unintentional verbal or nonverbal cues to, the influence, to influence the eyewitness to pick the suspect. The second is instructions. Instructions are a series of statements issued by the lineup administrator to the eyewitness that deter the eyewitness from feeling compelled to make a selection. They also prevent the witness from looking to the lineup administrator for feedback during the identification procedure. One of the recommended instructions include the directive that the suspect may or may not be in the lineup. Oh, okay. Yeah. Again, like it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like let them know, like they might not be there, but mm -hmm. they might like, we don't know. You tell us because at the end of the day, you're the one that saw them. So the third one is composing the lineup. Suspect photographs should be selected that do not bring unreasonable attention to him. Non-suspect photographs and or live lineup members, AKA the fillers should be selected based on their resemblance to the description provided by the eyewitness, as opposed to the resemblance to the police suspect. Um, number four is confidence statements. Immediately following the lineup procedure, the eyewitness should provide a statement in his or her own words that articulates the level of confidence he or she has in the identification made. The fifth is the lineup procedure should be documented. Ideally, the lineup procedure should be electronically recorded. If this isn't practical, an audio or written record should be made. So it's not surprising that mistaken identifications are the leading factor in wrongful convictions. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Inaccurate eyewitness identifications can confound investigations from the earliest stages. Critical time is lost while police are distracted from the real perpetrator, focusing instead on building the case against an innocent person. And despite solid and growing proof of the inaccuracy of traditional eyewitness ID procedures and the availability of simple measures to reform them, traditional eyewitness identification remain amongst the most commonly used and compelling evidence brought against criminal defendants. Mistaken eyewitness identifications contribute to approximately 70% of the more than 350 wrongful convictions in the United States overturned by post-conviction DNA evidence. Ronald Cotton was number 23. Aww. So after him, there's been so many. In fact, one of the overturned convictions was Daryl Hunt, who was arrested in the 1984 rape and murder of Deborah Sykes, which Jennifer talked about. Oh, okay which occurred two weeks after Jennifer's assault. He was convicted in North Carolina in 1985. He had DNA evidence prove his innocence in 1994, but it took another 10 years of legal appeals before he was exonerated. Wow. Ronald was the first post-conviction DNA exoneree in North Carolina. His case helped establish measures for the five others in the state who had been exonerated since his release. When Ronald was released, his team worked to get a bill passed that would entitle him to $10,000 for every year he was incarcerated. 
In 2001, the amount was increased to $20,000 a year. Um, And then in 2008, Governor Mike Easley of North Carolina signed another bill stating that those who received a pardon of innocence on or before January 1st of 2004 would receive $50,000 a year with a cap of $750,000. And in that money, like they could use um, the money for state funded educational benefits and up to a year of job skill training. Um, Yeah. So... Ronald received his pardon in 1995, and so he didn't qualify for the 50000 a year Where? thing, um, but he did end up getting... So, like, there was back and forth because technically he served, like, 10 and a half years. I don't remember the exact, like, number of days, but they ended up giving him $110,000 okay. for his time in prison. And then kind of, like, something good... Obviously, all of this is really good that came out of it, but another really good thing that came out of it is Are that... Are the bright spots? This is kind of a bright spot. I mean, these were all bright spots. I'm sorry I didn't bring it up. But these were all bright spots because they were between he and Jennifer. Mm -hmm. Um, Jennifer was like a huge advocate on all of this. And so she was sending letters to legislators and like speaking and doing whatever she could to make sure that she can help him in any way. So she had a huge part in the money, like the amount going up every year. But another, I guess, bright spot would be that... So Mike Galden, which was her the detective, the case detective, um, he became kind of like family to Jennifer. She says that, like, he was the only one in, like, the whole process that spoke to her kind of like like a human with, like, empathy and sympathy. And so Mm -hmm. she, like, really cared for him. And so they still, like, talk. But he ended up moving up from detective and ended up retiring as the chief of police in 2007 for that like his little department Mm -hmm. and under his leadership the burlington police department became the first in the state of north carolina to mandate sequential lineups where witnesses are shown suspects or suspect photos one at a time instead of simultaneously and double blind procedures which we spoke about Mm -hmm. where the lineup administrator is not the investigating officer and therefore doesn't know which picture or person in a physical lineup is a suspect and thus cannot provide any unintentional clues so he took everything that he learned mm-hmm. from this trying case because he obviously it. felt awful trying to better himself. And yeah. he's in a lot of the interviews as well. And he's just so like apologetic about it. And I feel like you don't see that a lot when mm-hmm. mistakes like this are made. Um, but he obviously feels awful. But like he said, you know, the same system that wrongfully incarcerated him is the one that's now kind of like helping and mm-hmm. like who let him out and all of that so it's an awful thing that happened the story is awful because at the end of the day she was raped yeah. by this really awful person but they they're so sweet so they like talk jennifer and ronald talk about how actually the beginning of the book was really cute because it starts off with um a story of how they're at like jennifer's daughter's soccer game i believe Mm-hmm. and she's just there with her old friend Ronald. At this point, we don't know who Ronald is. Mm-hmm. Well, like, if you don't know the story, you don't know who Ronald is. Um, but she's just talking about how, like, her old friend came by to watch the soccer game, and people are watching them interact, and they're like, oh, like, who's this guy? So one of, like, the nosy moms comes up to them is like, hey, where's your husband? And she's like, oh, <laughs> he's picking up my son from his game. He'll be over. And she was like, who's this (laughs) pointing to Ronald and she's like oh he's just a friend and 
you know, she's kind of prying for more. Mm -hmm. And Ronald just says, oh, we go way back. But they talk about how when they're like traveling for speaking engagements, Mm -hmm. people will ask them like, oh, how do you two know each other? And that they just kind of look at each other and laugh because how do you how do you even explain? (laughs) And so they ask them, like, do you guys tell them? And they're like, yeah, I mean, eventually we'll tell them. And they look at us shocked, like, why are you guys together? (laughs) But that, I think, to me, is the biggest bright spot because she conquered so much in all of this because there was so much on her plate. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's a rape victim, which we know is already super hard. But then on top of being a rape victim, she had to deal with the guilt of imprisoning this, like, really innocent and sweet and kind man. Mm -hmm. And so for 11 years, she said she would have nightmares and all she could see is Ronald's face. Mm -hmm. But at the end of it, she says that she doesn't see anything anymore and that when she thinks of Ronald, all she thinks of is like love and the the, like friendship that they have. And they they asked her, like, do you see Bobby Poole at all? And she's like, no, Bobby Poole died where he needed to be. Mm -hmm. Ronald is just a great friend, Mm -hmm. you know, like his daughter and her like kids all know each other and they've been like they were explained what happened and so it was just like the sweetest thing the brightest of spots was the friendship (laughs) that came from this really like unlikely and awful story yeah so that's the story of jennifer thompson canino and ronald cotton fuck bobby pool and fuck the ex-boyfriend and his family yeah so when so she met her her now husband, mm-hmm. um, and they were about to get married. And she tells like a quick note, quick side note about how Paul came to see her before Ugh. like the wedding or whatever. Obviously for her, like it was painful and it was hurtful and mm-hmm. not what she like expected would happen. But the guy's family was like, I don't think they were like big in town, but they were like known. Mm-hmm. And he loved the town and he wanted to be there forever. And for her, that was the last thing she wanted to do. She wanted to leave. And so she kind of knew, you know, like this is now not going to work out for so many reasons. Like the simplest being, I want to get out of this town and he wants to stay. And then obviously like Paul not knowing how to deal with his girlfriend who was suddenly a rape victim Mm -hmm. and the town and the gossip and all of this. But He ends up coming over to her house, I think, to, like, congratulate her, I believe, for getting married. And he says something along the lines of, like, I'm really sorry things didn't turn out the way that we thought they were going to turn out. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I'll love you forever. And she told him, you know, yes, of course, like, I'm always going to have a special spot in my heart for you. Um, And he tells her that... He's like, I never told you this, but I had already like signed us up for, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like married living on campus where like, if you're married, you get like a special dorm room or something like that on campus before he had ever proposed before anything had happened. He's Mm -hmm. like, I just, that's how certain I was that you and I were going to be together forever that I Mm -hmm. had signed us up. And so she says that like in that moment, like they both knew like, God, like, how crazy this life is that Mm -hmm. we were both so sure that we were going to be somewhere and then suddenly one night everything changed changed. everything yeah and so she's she's happy 
she's a mom of three triplets. She had triplets. Um, obviously, like I said, like she's doing her speaking engagements and doing everything she can, but it's just such a crazy story. And that's that. Thank you. You're welcome for that one, Steph. That was a good one. Look it up. It's so good. Look it up. I told you all of it, but now look it up. Yeah. I mean, there's so much <laughs> I couldn't cover, but it was, yeah. I'm sure the book is really sweet. The book is really, really good and very telling and informative for anyone who's interested in knowing what both of those groups of people go through. Yeah. What it's like to be in prison, making like innocent wine. Yeah. Making wine. He talks about making wine in prison. Yeah, he talks about all of the things that he did to, like, get by. And, you know, how he was almost, like, raped in prison and how he had to, like, fight. Yeah, like, all of the things that we, like, know happens in prison, but you're getting it, like, firsthand. So it was really interesting to hear his perspective and obviously super interesting to get hers. Mm -hmm. Ronald ended up actually working at LabCorp. It wasn't oh. the LabCorp who tested his DNA, but uh-huh. it was like a LabCorp in town, which was kind of that crazy. That does DNA testing. That now. does DNA testing cool. and all of that. So that's that. <laughs> you can have that wherever you want. Fun I fact. Will. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I like that story. And thank you to the girl who gave you. Yes. Um, shout out to her because I don't think, I mean, I'm sure at some point I might have found it, but like mm-hmm. this really just consumed my. Um, my like last couple days like mm-hmm. my last week just listening to the audiobook mm-hmm. and watching the youtube videos and everything so thank you so much i might try to find her name yeah wait can i say her name i don't know you'd have to ask her well permission. thank you to the girl on facebook <laughs> <laughs> and then that also segues into if you have any other stories you'd like us to cover or any topics you'd like us to research you can dm us on instagram at unjustly podcast um, you can email us also on podcast at gmail.com. And now we have a Facebook that you can like. I think you can send messages. Can you send messages on that page? I don't know how that works. I think so. Well, I hate um, our, Facebook. Our I don't know email how email account it. is on there. So you can oh, like email through it, the Facebook. Yeah, I think so. Okay. But you can just like post on it. I don't know. But reach us somehow and um, we'll see if it's something that we can cover. Um, another thing I wanted to start adding into our podcast episodes, um, Steph touched base a little bit in the beginning about how thankful we were, um, for everyone that's been supporting us in this and how pleasantly surprised we were to be supported by people that we didn't necessarily expect the support from. Um, and I, I remember, you know, when we first launched the first couple episodes and um, people were sharing it onto their stories and um, telling us, you know, reaching out to us and they were so happy for us. And it was people that like I didn't think even knew I was doing anything with my life right now. (laughs) Um, People we haven't talked to in years. Um, You know, you expect your close friends and family to be the ones that are going to be the first ones to support you. But then when these other people support you, it's just this overwhelmingly sense of like love and um, gratitude, gratitude, so much gratitude. And it's, it's so beautiful to see. And so I kind of wanted to give back some of that feeling to other people. And so I wanted to add like a, an amplify corner and I want to be able to support other people who are um, doing things like 
uh, creating a small business or maybe they're doing some activist work in the community, um, trying to build some change. And um, a lot of those people need help, like signing petitions and things like that. Um, so I every episode, I want to add something like that um, where we kind of shout out someone else to, to help them and show our support. So we're so thankful for the support that we've been getting. We want to give back that support. Um, and it's not going to be paid support. (laughs) This is someone that we've chosen or come across or, you know, just randomly have, um, learned about and we want to help them out. So did you want to add something to that? Keep supporting us though. Yeah. We still need support. (laughs) Go to our Instagram and our Facebook and send us recommendations, but no, in all seriousness, yes, of course. Um, like Sandy said, we've received a lot of, um, support in the last couple of days slash week or so since this first aired and um it's just been really nice to see so whatever we can do to help we would like to and we would like to continue growing this like little i don't know what it is community of creators i guess mm-hmm. that oh, you I know like exists mm-hmm. in this day and age so even if they're not like fellow podcasters cuz it doesn't have to be it could literally be anyone so since Sandy sprang this on me about the the what are we calling Amplify Corner. The Amplify Corner. Um, she will be doing the first one this week because like many things, I am unprepared um, for one, but I will have a good one next week. Okay. Um, but no. Sandy actually showed up to our house today wearing a really cool shirt. Um, it's It says daughter of an immigrant with like a big rose in the center. Mm-hmm. And I had actually been seeing it on Instagram myself. So when she walked in, I was like, oh my God. Where'd you get that? And she's like, it's for my corner that I'm about to do. And I'm like, what corner? So this is the corner. We're amplifying voices, which we should. Um, but tell us a little bit about your shirt and who it's, yeah. who it's by. So I love this shirt. Um, so like Steph said, it says daughter of an immigrant. I know I look white, but I'm actually half Mexican. And my mom was an immigrant from Mexico. Um, and I grew up with her mostly. And so I mostly identify with that side of my family. Um, and so I saw like the struggles that she went through when I was younger. And, um, you know, we started from nothing. There was a really long time where it was just me and her and we shared a room. So like we had a small apartment or a one bedroom or we rented out, um, or we stay with my aunt for a, a few years as well. And, um, we just shared a room. So like for years it was me and her, um, just spending all this time together. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was the coolest thing. <laughs> she was probably annoyed with me being in her room for like eight years. <laughs> um, but you know, she worked so hard. She worked her way up. She went back to school. She got, um, her degree in nursing and she's just doing so good now. And to see where she is now, I'm so proud of her, which is why it says, you know, proud daughter of an immigrant. And, um, but where I found this shirt is from a shop on Etsy and, um, I had seen like, like Steph did, I saw it on Facebook. And so I just wanted to look on Etsy for someone's brand of it. And so I came across this Etsy shop and it's called God bless this design. And she has the cutest like shirts with social injustice, um, like quotes on it. So she has a lot of quotes from John Lewis, um, the get in trouble, you know, good trouble, necessary trouble. Mm -hmm. 
She has um, a lot of shirts about voting, um, women's rights to vote, things like that. Um, it's so cute. So I reached out to her because I already had this in mind that I wanted to do an Amplify Corner. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that she was okay with it first. And I kind of wanted to get a little tidbit from her. So her name is Grace and she's a single mom. Um, she started her small business in 2018 for her love of humanitarian aid and design. Um, she says that her store's objective is to defend all social issues that are related to oppression or injustice with priority for women. So I just felt like it was so um, fitting, fitting for our podcast specifically. And the shirts are really great quality. It's mm -hmm. so soft. It's really cute. Um, I'm going to buy some more from her. Um, I just got this in the mail not too long ago. So I'm gonna get one of the John Lewis ones and probably a voting one right now since that's a hot topic. So hot that's topic. my Amplify Corner. Go visit her Etsy shop if you'd like to get After one of her After you shirts. visited our Instagram. After. Yeah. Um, like our Instagram page, like our Facebook page. If you can subscribe to this. Rate it. Do whatever you can. Do what you do on the podcasting stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Rate and review. So yeah. I did learn that they are two different things. Okay. One is We're learning. stars. You five ah. stars, four stars, three stars. And the other one is an actual review where you write like, this is great. <laughs> Thanks. Type of thing. So yeah. do both of them. Um, it really helps us out. And again, we, we appreciate all the support that we've gotten so far. And um, we're doing this for you guys. So contact us if there's anything you'd like us to cover. Please send us good stories like this one. This was, was so fun to do. Fun, you know. <laughs> not like, not like the someone's research side of it. Yeah, I research. like the research side. I get stressed out doing all the research because, I mean, we're working full time. I have the kids at home. And so it's, um, I'm usually doing it like late at night or during like my lunch breaks in between court hearings. So I'm finding, you know, very random times to do it but I love doing the research and I want to be able to bring more awareness to different topics um and like the psychology behind things like mm -hmm. we've been going through I love that so much I don't know if anyone else loves it as much as I do um but I feel like if we can get an understanding of why these things are happening and how we can prevent it mm -hmm. then that would make me the happiest yeah agreed all right thanks bye thank you bye <laughs> <laughs>